But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites and the Hittites, the Perizzites and the Rephaim, the Amorites and the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. This is the most critical passage in the Old Testament. We discover in Genesis chapter 15 some wonderful things for the Christian. If you are a Christian, if you believe in the God of the Bible, Genesis 15 has some marvelous things for you. If you're not a Christian, but you're with us today, I'm really glad you're here. And I would suggest to you that the things that are contained within this chapter, uh, very ancient account, are very important for you to consider as well. And I encourage you to weigh them heavily. God has, we've been looking at Abram and Sarai's life. And we've been discovering uh, from Genesis chapter 12 forward that God has been making promises to Abram. That through Abram and through his descendant, he doesn't have any children yet, but through him and his descendant, the entire world would be blessed. All, all families of nations through this one man and his descendant would be blessed. And here in Genesis 15, we actually get a glimpse. It's, not, it's still mysterious, but we really get a hard glimpse of how God would do it. Of how God would bless the world through one man. It's by giving this person and everyone 
who is like Abram, giving this one person, giving people faith. Faith to receive God's righteousness. That's how God would do it. By giving the gift of faith to receive the righteousness of God. In short, that's the blessing. That's the blessing God's been talking about all along. And perhaps the most amazing thing that we discover in this chapter of the Old Testament is that to bring about this blessing for all of humanity, God would make a covenant to curse himself. And so I want to talk to you about faith and righteousness and this covenant. Faith, the righteousness of God, and the covenant that God would make here with Abram. Now, as you look at Genesis 15, you discover the centrality of faith in the Bible. You see in verse 6, we are told Abram believed the Lord. And this becomes the major theme of Scripture. Abram believed the Lord. Now, here is what faith is not. Biblical belief or, or faith is not simply, and you heard me say this before, it is not simply an intellectual assent. You're not just agreeing to principles and to ideas. It is, it's at least that, but much more than that. Biblical faith is not just intelligent speculation about the future. Biblical faith is not irrational superstition either. Biblical faith is, as the Apostle Paul would say it in Romans chapter 4, read Romans 4, because the Apostle Paul talks about Abram and Genesis 15. He gives us insight into it. And Paul said in Romans 4, 21, Abram was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is how the Bible describes faith. Now, God had promised to Abram that you would be the father of a nation. Now, what do you need to be the father of a nation? You need a descendant. <laughs> you, you need a kid and you need land if you're going to be the father of a nation. You notice at this point, Abram has neither. Still doesn't have a descendant. Still childless. He and Sarai are getting, getting up there really in years. Still no descendant and still no land. He's living in the land. He does not own it yet. And so Abram, and this is, this is really a summary of Abram's struggle. He basically says to God in these verses, what are you going to give me? And, and how will I know? What are you going to give me because I'm still childless? And how will I know I'm going to inherit this land? Actually, Lord, there's this guy, Eliezer from Damascus. It was probably, scholars think, one of Abram's most trusted household servants. Perhaps a man that was steward over much of what Abram owned, who had been born and raised up in Abram's house. And, and apparently, Abram was thinking, if I die without an heir, I'm going to have to give my inheritance to the person in my household who works for me that I trust the most. But God's reply to him was, and this is a summary, but basically, no, this guy is not going to inherit your estate, your own son. And as the Hebrew says, out of your own belly, or in the, the, the King James Version says, out of your own bowels will come your heir. 
and you will be given this land to your descendants. And Abram believed that. This is what Abram believed. So faith, and, and uh, one scholar who wrote a great commentary on the book of Genesis, his name was Derek Kidner, he said, by looking at this passage, that faith is both personal and propositional. Biblical faith is personal and propositional. It's personal because what? Abram believed God. The object of his faith was a person. God. And faith is also propositional because he believed in what God said. He believed in God's truth. And Derek Kidner went on to describe biblical faith as a readiness to accept what God promises. I mentioned last week, one of my seminary professors, Jeffrey Niehaus, said that faith, in short, is agreeing with God. What God says, you agree. That's faith. The writer and theologian Richard Lovelace uh, gave a more, I think, a more complete definition. He said, faith is to receive God's word as truth and to rest upon it in dependent trust. Now, is character and integrity important to the God of the Bible? Yes. Our ethics and morality important. Our actions and how you live important to the God of the Bible and to the Christian faith. You betcha. Absolutely. But notice that Abram was not commended for those things. Now think about what he's been through so far. Abram here is not commended for his his charitable benevolence to his nephew Lot, who didn't deserve it. Bailed Lot out more than once. He's not commended for that. Turns out that Abram was a skilled negotiator in how he dealt with uh, the crowded space that he and Lot uh, were sharing um, as strangers in Canaan. Abram was a successful negotiator, but he's not commended for that. Abram, in his travels and through the years, has become extremely wealthy. But he's not commended for that. Abram has completed a military campaign making him the conqueror of the region. But he's not commended for that either. He's commended for his faith. That's what he's remembered for. And thousands of years later, when the the letter to the Hebrews was written, the author said, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So action, morality, ethics, character, justice, mercy... Honesty, all important to God. But they all take the back seat when it comes to faith, according to the Bible. This is the fundamental difference between Christianity and the world's religions. The centrality of faith in your relationship with your creator. Not only do we discover in Genesis 15 the centrality of this faith, we also see, we discover the gift of righteousness. Because in verse 6, if we read the entire verse, we are told Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed God and God counted that to Abram as righteousness. Now, just in short, this is what the Bible means by righteous. 
The word means straight, upright, as opposed to crooked. Think, think morally crooked. You understand what being morally crooked means? Well, now imagine being morally straight, morally upright in the eyes of your creator who is perfect and holy and good. That is what righteousness means. Your moral condition before your creator. But before you assume that Abram's faith earned him this righteousness, because it didn't. His, His faith did not earn him righteousness. It's not a cause and effect type of thing here. And let me explain what I mean by this. The pastor and theologian uh, from decades ago, James Boyce, he, he put it this way when talking about this passage. He said that faith is the channel. Faith is the conduit. Faith is the means. It is not the ground. It is not the basis. Abram's faith was not the basis for his righteousness. It was a channel by which God gave righteousness to him. And Boyce goes on to, to write this. In order, he uses an illustration with money. He says, in order to spend a $20 bill, you have to have faith in its purchasing power. But it's not your faith that is the basis for the purchase. It's the value of the money. So also is the case with spiritual, in a spiritual dimension. So if I give you a $20 bill and say, go spend this, it's, it's not your faith in the money that will accomplish. You're not going to be able to buy something just because you have faith in the money. The money has to be worth something. It's the value of the money, not the value of your faith in the money. I can believe that monopoly money will buy me something at the store, but there's no value to it outside of the kitchen table with the monopoly board, right? You're not going to take Monopoly money into the store and get anywhere. You're not coming out with anything, right? So it's really not your faith in God. It is God himself that deserves the credit. Let's go further. God didn't recognize that Abram was righteous. It's not like God was sitting up there and said, oh, now look at this guy. There's a righteous guy. No. It says Abram believed what God was saying and God credited that belief to Abram as righteousness. God, what is, what is the word? God counted it to him as righteous. The word counted, it means to credit. It means to reckon something, to credit somebody with something. So let's think about that. Let's think in financial terms. To credit an account means to put something into the account that wasn't already there, Right? So if one of my children has, has zero, zero money in their bank account and I take that $20 bill and I put it in their bank account, I credit their account with that $20. When you credit something to someone's account, it, it, it implies that it, what you're giving them wasn't there in the first place or else you're not crediting them anything. And that's, that's what the Bible's saying in here. The righteousness that God credited to Abram it was not inherently in Abram in the first place. It was a provision that God made for him. And the way Martin Luther put it was that God credited to Abram an 
alien righteousness. It didn't belong to him. It came from outside of him, given to him by God. It wasn't previously there. So faith was not the cause of Abram's righteousness. It was the channel by which Abram received God's righteousness. The Apostle Paul would put it this way in his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. See, if the, if the righteousness belonged to Abram, if it was inherently his, he would have had a reason to boast and say, God noticed, God, God noticed my righteousness. But that's not what Genesis 15 says. And that's not what the New Testament said. Look, what is greater? Your faith in God or God's ability to save you? What is greater? Believing that God will save you and provide for you or God's ability to save you and provide for you. So even when you trust him, he gets the credit. He gets the glory. The very ability to trust him, according to Paul, is in and of itself God's gift to you. Faith, the vehicle by which his righteousness comes to the believer, is still a gift this, theologians say, is, big word, justification. This whole thing, this concept of God crediting to Abram righteousness, this is justification. And what the, what the, the theologian John Calvin once said was that justification is like a hinge. It's the hinge on which all of Christianity turns. And John Calvin wrote this. The, this is what justification by faith actually is. The acceptance with which God receives us into his favor, check this out, as if we were righteous. Notice Calvin didn't say God receives us into our favor, into his favor because we are righteous. No, God receives us into his favor as if we were righteous. There's the crediting it to your account. And Calvin went on to say, and we say that this justification consists in the forgiveness of sins and the imputation, that's another word for crediting to you, something that you didn't originally have. The forgiveness of sins and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Ah. Enter a new, a new character into the story. The Apostle Paul, again, I don't know whether this is a sermon on Genesis 15 or Romans. Um, but I'm going to quote from you again, Paul's words to the Romans, Romans chapter four, Paul, Paul elucidates and clarifies what's going on in Genesis 15. Paul said the words it was counted to him were not written for Abram's sake alone, but for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who was raised from the dead, him who raised from the dead, our Lord Jesus who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
Now, you may be saying, hold on a minute. Um, Abram didn't know Jesus. Abram lived 2,000 years before Jesus did. So what is this whole thing about Abram being, I mean, all right, so a Christian is justified by faith, believing Jesus was died on a cross and rose from the dead. How does that help Abram? Well, you know, Abram didn't know Jesus by name, but Abram did know that his descendant would bless the world. That is ultimately, see, Abram is not just believing, ah, I'm going to be a daddy someday. Ah, I'm going to own all this land that you puny Canaanites are living in right now. That's not the nature of Abram's faith. Abram's faith was in what God was promising, particularly through you and your family and ultimately your descendant, one person. I'm going to bless all of humanity. And so, again, the Apostle Paul sheds light on this as well, but in a different letter to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, where Paul said, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel, the gospel, beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, Paul was writing to Jews and Christians, so he had to make that clear, that the gospel is for Jews and Gentiles, and it was first preached to Abraham, and Abraham believed it. See, in the Old Testament, Abraham, David, Moses, Esther, Ruth, in the Old Testament, people of faith looked forward to God's coming blessing. But it was mysterious to them. They didn't know how he would do it. All they knew was he would do it. I will do it. I will restore. I will send my Messiah, the descendant of Abraham, the son of David. I will do it. Their faith was in the word of God that he would do it. But it remained a mystery to them. But in the New Testament and for me and for you, faith looks backward. Faith looks back to Jesus Christ hanging on a Roman cross, to Jesus Christ rising from the dead, to see that mysterious blessing of God finally revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. Abram's faith was just as legitimate as yours. He just looked forward to a promise that he did not see fulfilled. You, as a Christian, look backward to the promise Fulfilled, But whether it's you living now in 2018 or Abram living roughly 2,000 years B.C., we are justified by faith. We receive God's righteousness as a gift. And the vehicle of that is faith, is trusting in this God who makes his promises to you. So Paul would go on to say in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul said, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That's weird English. It just means the righteousness of God is revealed by faith in faith. It's about faith, is what Paul's saying. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Martin Luther was terrified by those words. You know, gospel means good news. And Martin Luther, living in the 1500s, he'd look at verses like that and go, I don't, I'm not, I don't get it. How is the righteousness of God good news? God is righteous and I'm sinful. That terrifies me. A righteous, holy God scares me to death. And Luther lived in fear. And some of us live in fear. And you would be right. But that's not the good news. And Martin Luther finally realized, aha, the good news is not simply that God is righteous. You should be scared. (laughs) That's the bad news. Luther discovered the good news is not simply the righteousness that God has, the righteousness that God gives. That's the gospel. That God gives, credits to you, his righteousness as a gift by faith in his son. And so Luther would write, faith, we're going to go back to another working definition of faith. Faith is a living Daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. Do you believe that? Would you stake your life on God's promise a thousand times? Let me ask you a question What type of righteousness are you pursuing? We open the service with Psalm 51, where the Lord says, listen up, all you who pursue righteousness, because my righteousness is coming. So what type of righteousness do you pursue? Be honest with yourself. I'm I'm trying to be honest with myself. We so desperately want to be justified in our own eyes, don't we? We so desperately want to be justified in the eyes of other people. How many things do you do? How much money do you spend? How much time do, you, do your thoughts focus on finding ways to look good or to be right or to feel vindicated, affirmed, confirmed, thought well of in the eyes of other people or maybe in the eyes of yourself? We do it all the time. Do you believe that your path to blessing is through that kind of righteousness. Do you believe that your path to blessing is in your good reputation? If you can just get the right reputation, if people would think otherwise of you, then you'll be okay. That's the path to your blessing. Do you think that way? Maybe, maybe your, your accomplishments, maybe not really what people think of you and your character, but maybe what people think of your, your success, your actions what you've been able to do and what you've been able to make and how you're able to handle yourself. Is that the path to your blessing? Is it your lifestyle? No, your your exemplary behavior? Is it your association with great people or good people or decent people or people that get you what you need, good connections? Is that the path to your blessing? Is it your religion? Is it your ability to be religious? Is that your path to blessing? Because if you look at all the other religions, that's exactly what it is. It's the religion. It's the laws. It's the do's and the don'ts. Accomplishing them well and successfully, that's the path to blessing. But according to Genesis 15 and according to the New Testament, that's not the path. What type of righteousness, 
What type of justification are you pursuing now? Well, look. The creator of the universe is not going to make you feel like a robot. You don't want to trust him? You don't have to. You can pursue whatever you please. And you know what? I'm not going to judge you for that. You can pursue whatever you please and we'll still welcome you here. Because I'm convinced that eventually you'll see this differently. But even if you don't, you can pursue whatever you please, but please understand that you will remain under God's curse. The curse of sin, guilt before him, and the curse that sin brings, which is death, not just physical death, but eternal death, separation from your creator and all that is good and all the restoration that humanity and the earth has coming to it, you get none of it. You stay separated from all of it. That is the reward of not trusting in the kind of justification that God offers to you. Actually, in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul wraps that concept up by saying, none is righteous. No, not one. Because if you're about that kind of justifying yourself, the only kind of righteousness, the only kind of justifying you can whip up is the kind that still leaves you under the curse of sin and death. And according to that, those standards, there is no one that is able to overcome that. But we discover in Genesis 15 the history of covenant making. So when you get engaged, you make like promises to one another. Yeah, I love you. I want to be with you forever. And, you know, all this great stuff. You make all these promises, but it's not until the wedding day. It's not until the covenant day that you say, I do. Regardless of all the promising, when it really counts is on that day when you both say, I do. And what you see in Genesis 15 is God begins to transition from speaking promises to Abram to cutting a covenant with Abram. In verse 9, because Abram believes. He's, it's one of those, I believe, help my unbelief types of things. He's not really doubting God. He believes God. He just, he, he's... He's wiped out from the battle of Genesis chapter 14, a little scared. Now everybody's got their, you know, now he's the top dog and are people going to be coming after him? I think he's just rightfully concerned about what's going on. He says, God, how do I know this? I, I still have no child. I still don't own any of the land. And God says, fear not, Abram, right in the beginning of the chapter, fear not. I am your shield. I am your, and your reward will be very great. And then God reminds him, no, you're going to have a descendant and the land is going to be yours. And Abram says, but how? How am I to know? And God says, okay, I want you to get a bunch of animals together. They're all domesticated livestock. Get a bunch of animals together. And then Abram, we're told in verse 10, Abram cuts all of the animals in half. And he sets the halves against each other like, like a row like a, like a row, an aisle, where on either side of the aisle are, are severed carcasses. 
really kind of gruesome if you think about it. Well, this resembles an ancient treaty. It resembles a second millennium BC suzerain vassal treaty. If you're here last week, you know, in, in the ancient Near East, there were big kings and little kings. The big kings were suzerains. The little kings were vassals. And if you were conquered by a bigger fish, well, what would happen is this. You and your soldiers would have to walk, bet- walk between severed human and animal carcasses. That was a tradition. And the whole significance of this was if you were a defeated king or a defeated soldier or a defeated servant and you walked between the animal pieces, you were basically saying, if I fail to keep the terms of our new agreement, this is going to happen to me. Whoever walked through those severed pieces was saying, if I fail to live up to the agreement that my new conquering king has established with me, if I break the covenant, this is going to happen to me. I'm invoking the judgment upon myself if I break the code. And uh, Abram would have understood this. It, It was an institution of his day. When God said, okay, You want to know how I'm going to prove to you that you're going to inherit and all of this is going to come true? Go get me some animals. What's interesting, it's just an idea, but what's interesting is God doesn't direct Abram what to do. He knows what to do. He understood the language. Abram understood what was about to take place. What's amazing is Abram didn't pass through the pieces. We're told in verse 17, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, what in the world is that all about? Well, in the original Hebrew, it simply says an oven of smoke and a torch of fire passed through the pieces. So what do we got like a like a smoldering microwave oven and a a lightsaber? What what's going on here? Well, I'll just ask you, where have you seen fire and smoke in the Bible? Those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, where do you see fire and smoke? What do you think of? Mount Sinai, the Exodus. Exactly. Exodus chapter 13. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire. To give them light. Fire and smoke. The presence of God. You see what's happening here? This is God. I don't think it looked like a little oven. And a flaming torch at all. I think it's. It's how a human writer has to write down. What Abram actually saw. But what Abram saw in fire and smoke. Was the presence of almighty God. Passing through. The severed animals. And I love it when someone who has been reading the Bible and following the God of the Bible for years learns about the significance of this passage for the very first time. It never gets old to me. And I think it should be in all the kids' Bibles. It's not in any of the Sunday school curriculum, I think because it's gross and it's, it's, it's very, uh, it, it, what's the word, gory? Gory, yeah, I don't know. What did you say? Gruesome, gruesome, gruesome and gory. But the kids should know about it. 
You see, God is taking the oath. Abram's not taking the oath. God is taking the oath. Um, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, look back on this moment. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. What God is showing Abram is that when the covenant between you and me is broken, because you'll see Abram is going to break the covenant. And Abram's descendants, one after the other, will break the covenant. And God is saying, when it happens, let, let the curse fall on me. Let the retribution fall on me. There was one descendant of Abram that did not fail the terms of the covenant. And the full wrath, the full curse for the covenant breaking for every person in history who has ever broken the covenant that God made with Abram. All of the wrath, the curse, it fell on Jesus Christ, Abram's descendant. God has literally, literally cursed himself to bring you blessing. Because Jesus, if anyone should have been counted as righteous because of righteousness inherently in him, it was Jesus. And Jesus paid the penalty. He took the wrath. Jesus, I believe, walked through those pieces. And he made it possible it made it possible for you to receive his righteousness just like Abram did by faith, by believing that this God who gives you his word and his promises to bless you and keep you by his terms, not by your terms, will fulfill his promises to you. The theologian Michael Horton, here's one last definition, a working definition of faith. Considering what we learn about what God has done. Faith is an empty hand embracing Jesus Christ. You don't come with anything, friends. You don't, or you miss the whole point of it. You don't come with anything. You realize, I have nothing to bring God. I must receive with my empty hands the blessings of Christ. That is biblical faith. As the old hymn suggests, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. So yeah, yeah, we are enduring the curse of sin and death. We get sick. We have arguments and fights. We, have fa- we, we, we go through failure and weakness and unfairness and oppression. Life is hard. We all have to deal with our own sin. We all have to look at our coming death. These are things that are going to happen because the wages of sin, the reward of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So, although you are under the curse of sin, although you are under the curse of death, it will not keep you in the grave and it will not keep you sinful forever. In Christ Jesus, you are blessed if you have the faith that Abram had.
So again, faith in the God of the Bible is trusting what he has said. And the best way to know what God has said is look at Jesus, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed. We are amazed at what you have done for us. We are almost speechless. I I don't think I'm going to pray for very long. I thank you for taking the curse of our sin upon yourself and giving us your son. And Lord Jesus, we praise you. Although you were inherently fully righteous in yourself, you took our curse and you put it upon yourself. And so we sing to you and we honor you and you worship you and we, will, we build our lives around you. We build our work and our relationships, our friendships, our marriages, uh, our education. We build it all around you because you have done this. Help us to relearn how to live. Help us to relearn how to think. That we would receive your righteousness by faith. Or if we have, be reminded that we have brought nothing to you. But with open arms we have received what by grace you have given to us. Hallelujah. Amen.